This is the On Vocation podcast. It's a new podcast we're launching here at Bethel. I'm Eric Leafblad. I'm an assistant professor of missional ministries in the biblical and theological studies department here. And I have the privilege of directing a grant given to Bethel by an organization called NetView, which is trying to explore sort of across the country with lots of different schools on uh, the question of vocation. What does it look like to live a meaningful life, a purposeful life? a life that matters in the 21st century. And so this is our ongoing conversation. Here's what we're hoping for. We're starting this in the spring. I was joined today by Professor Scott Winter from the Department of uh, English and Journalism here at Bethel. And we're going to be hosting a podcast starting in the fall, launch this spring, but beginning in the fall where I'm going to be regularly having conversation with people that I think are interesting, that students, faculty, staff will learn from and not just learn, but maybe even feel like inspired or maybe opened to new possibilities. And you'll hear some of that in our conversation today. So I'm hopeful that you'll listen to this and then uh, join us next fall as we get this podcast on vocation going in a more robust form. I am um, excited to have uh, my friend and colleague Scott Winter with me to talk a little bit about vocation. Scott, why don't you tell folks who don't know, because pretty much everybody knows you, I think, but Tell, tell folks on campus like who you are, what you do here, um, and why why it makes sense maybe that we are having this conversation together. For those of you who didn't buy my book, that is the exhaustive uh, piece on Nebraska's failure at basketball. Um, yeah, I'm Scott Winter. I have a background in sports writing, uh, editing at newspapers in my home state in North Dakota, uh, being a K-12 teacher for uh, three different stints in three different states, and eventually going back to school to become a, a professor and, and writer and Always feeling like, uh, yeah, things that just kind of happened to me, all of which were pretty good. But I always felt like, wow, how did this stuff happen to me? When did I choose all of this? Yeah, right. And that's maybe a good way to put some of this of like, how did this stuff happen to me? Like, I think um, one of the concepts that we've been looking at, for those that have been part of the conversation already, um, students and faculty, one of the concepts that we've been looking at is this idea that comes from this theorist or social scientist that I've gotten interested in over the last couple of years by the name of Hartmut Rosa. And that's really the main reason I'm interested in him because his name's Hartmut. Um, but, uh, like, like he has this concept that he calls resonance and he part of what he's trying to look at is like how is it the case that some people can have essentially identical looking lives right like same sort of material conditions same sort of um, jobs family all that stuff and for one of them the way that he talks about it is like the world sort of feels empty or mute it doesn't speak um, and maybe part of what's going on there part of what he's looking at is like um the world sort of seems like a dead object that they relate to, that they have to get as much from as they can in order to secure their place. And so life kind of falls silent versus folks in similar, exact same similar situations who live with what he calls resonance, which is where like the world is sort of open, teeming, vibrating. It's, it's like alive. Um, and so 
I think it's interesting that you put it like, how did this stuff happen to me? And I think that's part of what he's trying to talk about related to vocation, right? Is this idea that like the world is for folks who live with resonance, it seems like the world is something that's there to be encountered. And so stuff kind of happens to you. It's sort of beyond your control, but you're also participating in it rather than um, sort of um, thrown by it or uh, things like that. So like, uh, no pun intended here, but like, does that resonate for you as you think about your life uh, related to this maybe idea, this concept of vocation and, and resonance? Yeah, I mean, I brought up uh, my book, Nebraska Ball, that nobody read, mainly because, you know, I, I wasn't interested in writing about basketball. That whole project just kind of happened to me through serendipity, and I, I did it, right? But what was resonant about the whole project was I was amazed by the idea of a coach who grew up in the Dakotas, just like I did, in a really small town, just like I did, at the same time I did, totally isolated from, or at least we thought we were isolated from culture, from big-time sports, from big-time money, from big-time opportunity, frankly. I mean, our counselors told us to go to community college, and if that didn't work out, find a job. They told us to maybe go to the state university, and that's where you know, the best of us would go. If you wanted anything bigger than that, you you were just, you had an attitude problem, right? You thought a little too much of yourself, a little too big for your britches, right? So that story was not about me following around a basketball team. It was me trying to figure out how that coach was so bold to think that he could see himself coaching Division One sports, being a multi-million dollar coach. He had resonance in his life yeah and i want to know where that came from yeah and as like a basketball junkie in some sense like i loved him miles partly because like when i watch him coach like he almost even in like the like he didn't have great teams let's be honest he had one decent halfway decent team at nebraska but like there was always like this weird little smile on his face even when they're losing i mean i'm sure he wasn't happy you were around him a lot but like it like there was that sense that like the world uh, for him was joyous and encounterable and when his players did well or didn't do well like even that was just a moment for him to live and I, I like I think so I think Tim Miles um, is a good for those that don't care at all about basketball like that's just one example I think but like Tim Miles is maybe one of those folks that sort of does live with resonance I mean he got fired right mm -hmm. which probably sucked um, but he ends up then like in the studio, I think. Right. And so he's like, now, now he's, he's like, he's still just sort of like, okay, well, what's next for me. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good, um, example. So let's, <clears throat> let's maybe transition, not transition the conversation, but deepen it. Like one of the things that I encounter with, um, my students a lot is like when they're choosing a major, one of the, one of the most sort of pressing questions for them is how do I secure enough resources for my life, whether that's, you know, money, job, that kind of thing. Like, like how do we, how, how have you, like none of us, uh, you know, are getting rich as professors, right? How do you balance that sort of, and maybe balance is just the wrong even the wrong way of stating the question, but let me, but I'll ask it that way. How do you balance this like drive to accumulate resources with remaining open to the world? Cause in some sense to acquire resources, you have to uh, see the world as something that you can um, bring under your control in some ways. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've always been amazed by people like Tim Miles, like certain professors. I know you, in fact, um, a neuroscience that, that we used to work with, Adam Johnson, who always seemed to be chasing 
um, the answers to questions that w- they were most curious about. And they didn't spend their time on other things. Like they kept a focus on the stuff that really mattered to them. And, and to me, I think there was a resonance at work there. But, you know, when I talked to my students and I talked to them about, well, what do you want to become? Like even in my field, which is journalism, um, students aren't sure. Like do they want to become investigative reporters and tell truth? Do they want to... Uh, work in sports where they can be a part of the team, like work for the mm-hmm. Minnesota Twins and tell their story and be a marketer and to gather resources for a team. You know, wh- what is going to be more fulfilling to you? And a lot of people talk in, you know, career and calling offices about, well, what brings you joy? What what yeah. doesn't feel like work when you're doing it? And I'm not sure that that's always the yeah, right answer at all. Yeah. Um, so, so. I often think to Sylvia Plath in her novel, The Bell Jar, and the scene, you know, I, I re- it's been a while since I read it, but the scene that always resonated with me was her under the under the fig tree, and she's looking up at all these branches and all these limbs going out, and she's a good writer, so she's thinking about, and her boyfriend Buddy, her dumb boyfriend, is on her lap sleeping or something, they're having a picnic, and she's looking at these branches or these limbs, and each one could be a choice that she that she could take. She could go into big time fashion magazine where she's interning and live in that world of kind of, you know, superfluous silliness, um, but be a big time star. Or she could become a a novelist of consequence. So she could go to secretary school like her mom wants because you can always have a job there. Or she could become Buddy's wife and just pump out babies and be that housewife with the scarf and and all that. And she doesn't want to choose any of them because it would mean breaking herself off from the core of who she is, that trunk, or not having the opportunity to go out on any of those other limbs, right? And I don't know if it's still the case now. I think people jump limb to limb quite a bit now. Yeah. But I'm not even sure I even had that conversation with myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep, I do. And and I think this, one of the things you said in there that is is – I think really interesting as we think about this notion of like, how do you live a vocational life? How do you live a life where um, maybe the way to put it is like you actually show up in your life rather than just have life happen to you. Although we were talking about life happening to us, but I think, I think you get the point, but like one of the things you talked about was like, who do you want to become? Right? Like, who do you want to be? Um, or, or maybe even a different way of saying that is like, what does it mean to actually live? And this is a way that Rosa puts it as well, following another, a different philosopher, Eric Fromm, where he says, like, what does it mean to live with a sense of being in the world rather than this drive to have the world? And I think there's something really crucial to that um, as we're thinking about career, about calling, especially about vocation. Like, you can't so much of how I think we frame the conversation around issues of career is like, what are you going to do in order to have the life that you want? Um, but I think even just phrasing it that way, like to have the life you want actually takes you out of your life. It displaces you. It dislodges you from that question of being right. Um, and maybe we'll use Tim miles again. I don't suspect Tim wanted to get fired. But Tim has maybe lived into this sense of like, this is the way that I want to be in the world. And so, all right, I got fired. How do I still be who I've become and who I want to keep becoming? 
Yeah, I think the thing that drove him all the time, he likes to say, is like his mentor was losing, right? And that he always had to find an edge, and his edge was being the little dog in the fight. But in researching him for 18 months, what I really found, and maybe this is the same thing, but it feels different to me, is that when he was a little kid eating his Fruit Loops or Lucky Charms at 6 in the morning before all his his siblings got up, he looked out the window and he saw this, He his mom called it a jalopy, which is, you know, really an, a word from another time. But mm-hmm. I picture it, I don't, she couldn't remember what kind of car it was, but like a station wagon that was out in front of the school that was across the street from their house. And it was always there when Tim got up at six in the morning because there was a poor family in town and two brothers were wrestlers and they wanted to be great, right? Yep. So they came, they had a key to the school they went into that gym, that wrestling pit, and they just beat the snot out of each other every morning for hours. You know what I mean? And that got both of them to the Olympics from a small town of Dolan. Mm-hmm. And that small town of Dolan, 300 people, right, also had like four or five four-star generals. You know, it was just a crazy amount of success came out of that place because those people were living some kind of big dream. But mm-hmm. I don't want to want to – it feels more like resonance than American dream and, and capitalism. Yeah. Like the whole Gladwellian thing that it's more than just talent and hard work. You know, hard work is, is part of it. Talent it has is to part be. of it. Yep. But there has to be something else going on, which yep. is what I think you're talking about. Yeah. And so maybe, I mean, maybe this is a cheesy way of putting it, but perhaps, perhaps what I hear in those stories is this sense of like, um, maybe it isn't cheesy. I don't know. Uh, this sense of like a horizon of possibility, right? And I, yeah. I wonder, and maybe that's like what the, the, the trunk of the tree to go back to the bell jar. We're sort of like mixing all these different metaphors together, right? But like uh, the trunk actually keeps the branches in place, right? And so all those things become, I don't want to say options, uh, cause it, it, it doesn't feel like, at least the way that I think about resonance and vocation, it's not like all these options remain open to you, right? And like, just take your pick. What are you going to do? But there's a sense that like everything is imaginable or all those things that sort of help you answer the question of who you want to become. Like, not what do you want to have? Not what do you want to get out of life? But who do you want to actually be? Like, it's a horizon of possibility. And I, I wonder if there's, um, you know, again, to go to Rosa, for him, this notion of resonance is like there's a, it's a relationship to the world, right? And so the, and so I, I think there's a, there's a deep sense maybe of the world as possibility. And I, as I think about Bethel students, um, one of the things that I've tried to impress on my own students in missional ministries, and I know folks in other departments have as well, is that like what you're doing by becoming educated in a liberal arts environment, what you're doing by participating in particularly a a Christian faith-based institution like this is you're not actually like closing down possibilities or looking like for one sort of narrow way of thinking about the world. You're actually trying to see the world through the framework of, um, possibility and i think within that for me as a theologian of saying like the possibility that god might actually be at work in the world um and this is where i take rosa in my own work is like part of what it means to live vocationally is to explore uh resonance with god in the world 
whatever that might look like. For me, that has to do with like art, my kids, like these more subtle sorts of languages, as Charles Taylor would put it, that, that aren't like overt statements, right? They're not overt, like this is what you think, this is what you believe, but they're impressionistic, they're invitations into a kind of, um, expansive, unknown, mysterious, maybe even mystical at times, um, encounter with reality. And I think theologically speaking, um, like that has to do with God. And so maybe a question for you in that is how do you in your own sort of vocation as a journalist, like where, where's the, where's the spaces of possibility that sort of open you to God's action in the world? Right. So I got into journalism through nepotism. My, my dad was a journalist and, you know, I grew up in a place where I was asked to clean my room, which I didn't do. I was asked to clear the dishwasher after the dishwasher had run, which I didn't do. And I was asked to go cover that hockey game, which I did do because my name got in the paper and people talked to me about my writing and yeah. there was fame there and all that. But more importantly, it was $3.15 yep. per hour there, right? So resources, community yeah, resources. Right. But I never wanted to become my dad because who wants to become their dad, right? And so I always wanted to be a novelist. I knew that I wanted to be John Steinbeck, but I never did the work to become that, right? Yeah, right. And like and when you, when you say that, never, be, never did the work to become that, you mean like there's a certain sense – perhaps in which and sorry for interrupting I'll let you get back but like there's a certain sense in which like the work of becoming a craftsman or a craftsperson a novelist right like somebody who can give themselves to a craft not just like I mean it is plugging away putting hours in but it's also like becoming a certain sort of person right well I, I just didn't know what I didn't know yeah I didn't know the work that he had put in to sure. make that happen I thought it was just a talent thing and then you know I had a couple you know, horrible things work against me in that. And so I tried a lot of other stuff with the idea that, oh, I, it's like a, a waitress saying she's an actress, a server saying he's an act, he's an actor. Um, I was a teacher or a journalist, you know, who was really a writer, but yeah. I just haven't been able to do that yet. Right. Um, and it took a really transformational moment, a, a defining moment, a, a turning point. You know, your Romeo and Juliet turning point to, to force me to do the work, yeah. which was going back to grad school, um, you know, upending my family to do it and figuring out a way to make all that work. And I, I realized later that I was using my family as an excuse or things happening to me, the whole David Byrne, same as it ever was, um, theory as an excuse to not take the real step to do the work and find yeah. out if this is real or not. And then once I finally did that and I learned what I didn't know, um, you know, I'm figuring it out, but it really changed my trajectory by waiting 20 years to make that happen yeah. or waiting 15 years to make that happen. But I do think that God was at work in, or else it's just serendipity that, that the chance encounter between me and this you know, National Book Foundation finalist, unbelievable author, came face to face at a, you know, bison meatloaf restaurant yeah. on, the, on the Missouri River that forced me to do something about my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I you've used that term a couple of times, serendipity, and I think that's an important sort of word. It's one of the ways that I often talk about theologically, like the action of God's spirit. It's, it's 
these moments of serendipity where stuff sort of happens to us, things align, um, and, and our life is sort of uh, going one direction and starts to bend um, perhaps in a different direction. I, but I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but I, I always wonder about all the times <laughs> when I didn't recognize serendipity happening, yeah. when I didn't see that story unfolding before my face yeah. because I wasn't, you know, like it's like your whole theory about people summoning God into a room. God's always there. We're yeah. just not paying attention, yeah. you know. And I think that's what I've been doing for a long time as an excuse not to do that real work. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, – you you also used as you were describing that like this this sort of sense of like waiting, um, and I think you know you said you, it was like twenty years of sort of waiting to get there, and I think sometimes people might look at that as almost like failure or or um, like oh you you just couldn't figure it out or you were spinning your wheels, and I wonder if that's not the case right like I wonder if we shift that mentality. And I think this is something that could be exceptionally helpful for Bethel students. Because like, I was just talking with some seniors the other day. I'm like, so like, what's next? What are you doing? What do you want to do? And they're like, I don't actually know. And I actually felt like, that's great. That's actually, a, a that that's like a vocational place to be because you're not, you're not foreclosing the Eugene Peterson, uh, a pastor that I love his writing and just his person, he used to talk about sort of the plotting work of, um, for him, it was a pastoral vocation, but the sense of just plotting along slowly. And I think like learning to wait, um, as an act of plotting and not wheel spinning could be just a helpful sort of helpful, not in like a utilitarian sense, but in a formational sense of like, maybe that's what a life of resonance looks like. It's these, it's this sort of mundane, but also supercharged, no, nah, not supercharged, this mundane, but open mm-hmm. posture of living um, towards serendipity. Mm-hmm. Right. I th- I think, yeah, I think, that, yeah, that probably is really underrated, but at the same time, I think we have to, account for something else in that, which is the economics mm-hmm. of where we come from, right? Like some people have a safety net where they can afford to wait. So yeah. as I was waiting to, to do the real work, to make the real move, I fell into all kinds of jobs yeah. and safety nets within family and other things because I was a white male and I had a lot of opportunities, sure. right? So I could afford that time to wait and yeah. wait and wait. I had this student um, in my first year here at Bethel, who wrote a column. And she wrote about growing up up north in a small town and it's kind of a tough family situation. And basically the column was an accusation against her brothers. She was, it was basically a letter to her older brothers about how she'll never be an amazing um, entrepreneur or an incredible artist who changes the world because her brothers saved her life. Yeah. Gave her a life and took care of her and gave her a net where she could fail. Yeah. And she thinks she would be a great tortured artist if they had just failed her the way other people failed yeah. her. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's important to remember that it's great to have that convenience to be able to wait and to yeah. have that net because there are a lot of people in this world who have to scramble for any kind of opportunity, right? right. Yeah. And we have to remind ourselves that. Yeah. Well, and I wonder too if like waiting is more dispositional than mm-hmm. than like concrete right like i don't get the sense 
or like what I'm, what I wouldn't be suggesting is like, um, you know, just sit around in your parents' basement or something like that post graduation and wait till you get some spark of insight. Like right. the, the point is like, you might have to take a job. You might have to do some things that you don't really want to do. Uh, but are you, can you see that as part of the slow work yeah. of becoming? I have, I have students in a fiction writing class right now. And some of them are much more well-read than others. Some of them are more educated than others. Some are more mature than others. But I have a student who's worked some very real jobs. Yeah. Like overnight security. Yep. Um, overnight CNA work. You yep. know, she's done some real stuff. And her fiction is so much grittier. And she may not understand that doing those jobs is contributing like to her writing yeah. career. Like she wouldn't believe that like, you just don't know it in the yep. moment. And that's right. where the waiting might come in. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then what do we say about somebody like the producer of your podcast here? Yeah. Who, who, found exactly what he wanted to do yeah. a model of it perfectly yeah and then found that right away like i always wonder if our students don't wonder you know is there something wrong with me that right. i don't find it like right. like the way sam mulberry found his calling like right away and right as an undergrad in college and knew what he wanted to do and then lived it yeah he's living it well and i think that gets to maybe like the role of exemplars, right? Like we hold the people we hold up as exemplars of vocation or resonance or what have you. Like it, it, it is typically the sorts of folks who find their passion, find their calling right away and, and are like, it's just obvious, right? But then there's other folks, I think, like, so I, like, a, I'll talk about my mom. I always talk about my mom. Like my mom should have been a pastor. Like there's no, she was a physical therapist, which is a noble profession, right? Like you're helping people, but she should have been a pastor. That wasn't an option for her right? as a woman at the time. And maybe like it just never entered her, her imagination. Um, but like she should be, like she should be the example of vocation because what she, or, or resonance also, like somebody who didn't, I think, end up in the, quote unquote profession that they should have ended up in, uh, but spent her whole life as a physical therapist doing ministry with patients sitting and she right. worked in a Catholic hospital. So she had the um, space to like pray with people and, and like she was a good therapist, but like the stories I heard at her retirement from these n Catholic nuns had absolutely nothing to do with how she helped heal people. It was how she tended to people's souls, right? So she was a, she was a pastor, right. even if she didn't live in that space. Like she invented a vocation. Yeah, exactly right. right. And and I think like she, I don't think she was doing what she was meant to do. And she might disagree with me on that, but like I think she should have been in a church. She should have been, she should have been doing pastoral care. She should have been preaching. She should like she's smart. She gets theology, but it just wasn't. A possibility and in a certain sense i feel like mom you missed your profession but you didn't miss your calling right like you understood how to still bring that part of your your life into mm -hmm. uh your work so she was limited by the 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 vision of the church as to what women could do as yeah. in leadership roles but i mean she was in a place where she could do a lot of good right like, like Again, expanding ideas of what a church is, right? Yeah, and and how you live vocationally, and then I think also like looking at at people who you know 
my dad, on the other hand, also a physical therapist, like how cute, right? Uh, but like he looks back on his life and he's like, maybe I didn't spend the last 40 years doing what I wanted to do. And, and I don't think he was, would see himself as a failure. I don't think he thinks of it that way, but I think he looks back and goes, what if I did do something different? Right. And like holding that up as an example too. So I think that's part of, and maybe this is a, a good place to end. I think that's part of what I'm hopeful for, for this podcast is that we can start to have those sorts of conversations. Like what, what is the vocational life? How do we talk about vocation in all of its complexity in all of its multiple ways that people live it out? And so I'm grateful for you uh, to be here for this inaugural one to kind of kick that conversation off on our campus. Well, thanks a lot. I think this is going to be an important podcast, um, even within my little uh, journalism world uh, in this academic institution. We often talk to working journalists who have different paths to where they got, yeah. got to where they were going. And it's not always the story of more, 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 more internships, yeah. more stepping. Some of it was stepping back and figuring out who do I want to be and what do I want to contribute in this world? And those are the ones who are more self-reflective about that yeah. and more listening to what God was saying to them or, or listening to um, what their intuition was telling them yeah. and really going with their gut on that. And yeah. they've had better careers, I would argue. So I'm excited to see uh, who your guests are. I'm yep. excited to follow the podcast. I think you're off to a project that's going to matter. Um, and you never spend your time doing stuff that doesn't matter. So never. good luck with it, man. Never at all. All right. All right.